This sermon, A Mission Like No Other, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, October 24th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Acts? Acts 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. This morning we're going to fast forward 550 years from the day of Haggai. We've spent the last four weeks in the book of Haggai, and so we are shifting, uh, not only in the Bible, but we are making a shift in God's redemptive history. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, uh, it was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a colleague of the Apostle Paul. He was a doctor. He was a theologian. He was a historian. And we really see uh, Luke as a historian uh, in this book of Acts. Uh, Acts was written somewhere around 62 AD. And if you read through the epistles, uh, you can go back to the book of Acts and find their place. If we didn't have the book of Acts, you know what we would have? We would have a bunch of uh, letters written to churches that we just wouldn't have. How did they fit? Where were they in the place of God's redemptive history? Acts really puts all of those together. Acts talks about what was going on and what the Lord did and how the churches were planted that Paul was then caring for and writing letters to that, that, that follow the book of Acts. Luke was writing this to a friend of his, probably some Roman officer, and he begins his gospel uh, uh, by addressing Theophilus as almost excellent Theophilus, and so probably some type of rank, but he was a friend of Luke's, and he wrote Acts, or he wrote Luke for the benefit of his friend's faith. If you read in in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke says, I write to you, O Theophilus, so that you might have certainty of all that you have heard and believed. And Acts is really part two of Luke. Acts is just the continuation of Luke explaining and showing his dear friend Theophilus about who this Jesus is and why he should believe, whether Theophilus was an unbeliever or perhaps a new believer struggling in his faith, we don't know. But this was written for the benefit of his faith, and it is written for the benefit of our faith as well today. So would you stand with me as we dig in? We're going to be limiting ourselves to the first 11 verses this morning. Acts 1, this is Luke writing of all that Jesus began to do and all the Spirit did after the ascension of Christ. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Maybe seated. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you for gathering these people here today. We, we pray for those who aren't with us because of sickness or travel, but Lord, you have gathered these people by your grace, and you have intentions. So Lord, now as we look into your word, we pray I pray for myself that you would fill me freshly with your spirit to proclaim your word. Help me not to get in the way. Lord, I am inadequate. I am not fit for this task. But your Holy Spirit is here. And the promise is that your words go forth in power and in conviction. And so I pray for that. I pray that you... Fill those who are here listening and those who may be at home watching afresh with your spirit. Grant the grace of illumination. Give understanding. Bring conviction. Give encouragement. And let not one person who is with us today leave your word unaffected. Do this, we pray, by the power of your spirit, for the good of your people, and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, 12 weeks ago, as we begin our Grounded series, then again, four weeks ago, when we begin our Focus series, I said this. In so many ways, God has been merciful to our church through the chaos of the last 18 months. At the same time, like so many other churches, the last 18 months have left us distracted, scattered, and weakened. Spiritual complacency, pessimism, and indifference are real and real killers of the church. So for the next six months, we are going to celebrate grace as we reestablish ourselves foundationally 
in three words, grounded, focused, and hopeful. Part one was grounded in truth. We spent eight weeks looking at our seven shared values. Yes, that's what we did. I added one to our seven shared values. And then part two was what we've been doing for the last four weeks, focused on God's mission as we looked at the book of Haggai and God drawing his people who had drifted from their mission were distracted by the world around them and he brought them back to giving themselves to his priorities. Well, today we begin the third part, hopeful. Part three, hopeful. Grounded in truth and focused on God's priorities, we are hopeful that God will work in us, that he will work for us, and that he will work through us. For that, we turn to the book of Acts. And the goal, the goal is to preach through the first 12 chapters. I told Tim, who knows, maybe we'll just keep going when we get to the end of chapter 12. We will allow the Spirit to determine that. But if you're wondering why Acts, I get, okay, hopeful, why Acts? Well, if you asked me what I believe our church needs most right now, my answer wouldn't be more money. It wouldn't be better technology. It wouldn't be a bigger building. Now, all those would be nice. (laughs) But as I consider God's abundant grace, I shared with Tim this morning, as I consider God's abundant grace in our church, and it is abundant, here's what I think the Lord wants for us right now. Three things. A deeper desperation for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Two, a stronger conviction of the privilege, obligation, and implications of being witnesses for Jesus. And then three, a greater hope for what God can do in this city through our church. This is why we will spend the next several months in the book of Acts. We pray that God would produce an uncommon hopefulness in us, both individually and collectively as a church, as we look back as we remember God's faithfulness in his plan of salvation unfolding through the preaching of the gospel by ordinary people like us giving themselves to building Christ's church by the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit no matter the cost. That, that, that's my prayer. That's our prayer. We want that to be your prayer over these next few months that through the book of Acts, let me say this again, that God would produce an uncommon hopefulness in us as we look back at God's faithfulness in his plan of salvation 
unfolding through the preaching of the gospel by ordinary people giving themselves to the building of Christ's church by the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit, no matter the cost. That's where we're going. And that's what I believe the Lord is going to do. Now, listen, in Luke's introduction here, uh, he really gives us three. Actually, really, he gives us four, and we're going to look at the fourth one next week, three powerful reasons in our text this morning why we should be hopeful in our gospel mission together as a church. There's three of them. We're going to take them one at a time. We're, just so you know, we're not going to hit everything we could hit in these first 11 verses uh, we are approaching Acts uh, w- w- with, with a particular sense from the Lord. And so I would encourage you to study the book of Acts on your own for sure, because there will be plenty that we do not get to here. But here's the first thing that I want us to see in this text. We are hopeful because our mission is centered on Jesus. If you have ever read through the book of Acts, you know this about it. It is action-packed. Acts is nonstop. It's like Vegas, right? It just, Acts never sleeps. Bustling cities, angry mobs, prison breaks, tongues of fire from heaven. Good grief. Persecution. Powerful prayer meetings, buildings shaking. Miracles. Church plants, intimate community, you name it, Acts has it. But at the center of all the action is Jesus. Acts is certainly about the Holy Spirit's work of building Christ's church. But ultimately, Acts is about Jesus. Did did you notice as we read, every verse, the first 11 verses of Acts, refers, either refers to Jesus or records his words. Luke is constantly drawing our attention back to Jesus, and we see that in the first 11 verses. He can't even, he can't even omit Jesus in one verse in the first 11 verses. Did you know that the Greek verb for the phrase preach the gospel appears in Acts more than any other New Testament book? Acts has 28 chapters, 107 verses in the SV. I counted them this week. And a third of them, a third of the text in Acts is either someone preaching Christ, explaining why we need Christ, or telling us how much we don't deserve Christ. A third of Acts text. In all this history and in all of this activity, a third of the text is focused on Jesus. In fact, the book ends, if, if you know how Acts ends, it ends with Paul in Rome. These final two verses, listen to how it ends. He lived there, he being Paul, he lived there two weeks or two years, a whole, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. From beginning, this is what I want to see right off the get-go. From beginning to end and everything in between, Acts is about Jesus. And we see this even in the structure of our text today. Look at verse 1. Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The word began here is key. Luke begins with the word began. It tells us that Luke understood Acts not as a separate story about the spirit and the church in life after Jesus, but a continuation, a continuation of Jesus' ministry, a continuation of the mission that he was given by God before the foundations of the world to do the work of salvation that cost him his life. Luke said, we don't move on from that. The Gospels, they were just the beginning. That's just, I've told you about the the mission that Christ began. But I'm still writing about Christ and his mission. Notice verses 9 through 11. We're going to jump around a little bit this morning. He says, and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Acts covers a period of about 30 years following the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus that we see recorded right here. 30 years of the Holy Spirit powerfully saving sinners and the church being built, advancing the gospel through, uh, through uh, against all odds. But the angel's promise here goes far beyond the establishment of the church. The angel's promise here takes us far beyond. It points us forward, far beyond a handful of church plants, but ultimately to the what? To the triumphant return of Jesus for his church. Do you see the bookends here in in Luke's introductory? He begins by saying, hey, Theophilus, I'm still writing to you about Jesus. (laughs) I've already told you what he began. Let me tell you how the rest of the mission goes. And then in our text, he ends by saying, pointing Theophilus to, and he will return one day. You have these these Christ-centered bookends. But what's in between? Well, more Jesus. Notice in our text, after after commanding them in verses 4 and 5 to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit... The disciples eagerly inquired about the mission, revealing in one sense that that, that they were still thinking. They were still thinking too politically. (laughs) They were still thinking too ethnically. They were still thinking too geographically. 
for everything that they had got about Jesus, they, they still weren't getting what his kingdom was really about. They still weren't getting what this mission was truly about. And so notice in verse six, he says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus, you're alive. We're back. It's go time again. Will you now restore Israel? And did you catch Jesus' answer? He doesn't rebuke him. He says, listen, don't worry. God's got that. Right now, I want you to get your eyes off Rome. I want you to forget about politics. I want you to put your nationalism aside. Here's the mission. Here's the mission. Verse 8. You will be my witness. Mission isn't about the temple. It's not about geography. It's not about conquering Rome. It's about me. You will be my witnesses. That's where all this is going. That's where all that I've begun to do and teach is going. You will be my witnesses. Jesus doesn't commission them to Christianize the government. He doesn't command them to champion social justice or or equity causes. He does not call them to be passionate advocates for things like homeschool and headship. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will tell the world about me. You will passionately testify to my life and death and resurrection and ascension and return. You you will be my zealous ambassadors. You will be living proof of my living presence. You will be proof of my saving power. Here's the mission. You will be my witnesses. Listen to how John Piper describes a witness. A witness is a person who's been so touched so powerfully deeply moved by the reality of the living Jesus Christ, sweeping their sins away and inhabiting their heart so that there is absolutely no sense of doubt anymore that there's light outside that window or there's a pulpit here in front of me. And you speak with the kind of confidence of one who knows, who has tasted and seen. You will be my witnesses, you, you, you will speak and live as ones who have tasted 
and seen and are convinced that I am the Savior of sinners. The mission is focused on Jesus. But beginning in the garden, God's mission has been to mercifully reconcile sinners to himself to the praise of his glory. And at the center of that mission is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be on gospel mission, individually and corporately giving our entire being to being a faith-filled witness to the love and the mercy and the grace and the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency and the and the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. And we do that as our mission statement says through the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. So here's what I want to see first thing from the get-go, from beginning to end and everything in between, our mission is about Jesus. Our mission is not to build this church. Our mission is not to create amazing ministries or make a reputation for ourselves. Our mission is not to get everybody around us to dress and talk and act and raise their kids like we do. Our mission is to be the witness to Jesus Christ, to one another and to the world around us. So we are hopeful because our mission is centered on Jesus. Second, we are hopeful because our mission is rooted in history. It's real. Notice what he says in verse 3. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's quite the cliche nowadays, right? Particularly in the media. You're entitled to your own opinion, but what? You're not entitled to your own facts. And I say, okay, I'll run with that. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about facts. The disciples weren't gullible fools. They weren't backwoods simpletons. They lived with and they learned from Jesus for three years. They experienced his miracles. They listened to his teachings. They witnessed his arrest. They watched in horror as spikes were driven into his hands and feet, nailing him to the cross. They knew the man they loved and lived with for the last three years was dead. He's dead. It's over. But then Jesus rose again. In three days, just as he said he would do numerous times. And he didn't immediately ascend into heaven in the dark of night. God could have taken him from the tomb to the glory to the right-hand side of the throne. 
But instead, he appeared to them. As Luke says here, he, he gave them many proofs. That word proof there, uh, it, it, it can be translated convincing proofs. Convincing proofs. Jesus, in other words, Luke is saying Jesus presented himself to them alive in a lot of different ways. He gave them so much proof that they could not deny his existence, that they could not deny that he was dead. How? What? Jesus met with them. Jesus gathered them. Meet me in Galilee. He instructed them. He gathered them. He met with them. Jesus talked with them, and he taught them about this is what has happened. Even, even in the opening verses in 4, four through 5, he's, he's commanding them and promising them. Jesus ate with them. He drank with them. He appeared to over 500 people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Proofs that the man that was murdered on the cross and buried in the tomb is now alive just as he taught. His proofs were merciful and gracious. When Thomas doubted, you can go to John 20, 27, where Jesus mercifully went to him and said, Thomas, don't doubt. Look, touch my hands. Feel the hole in my side. It's me. Believe. I'm here. What more proof do you want? Luke says Jesus offered many proofs. Like I said, he could have went straight to heaven. He didn't. He gave proof that he was alive that he conquered death, that everything he said and taught was true. That he was God. And you know, before Luke fills his friend Theophilus in on Christianity's global spread, which is what is happening in Acts, Luke wants him to get this. It's as if Luke says, Theophilus, I know you're struggling to believe. I know you are searching for certainty. But Christi, I want you to know, Jesus gave many proofs. Christianity is based on fact. And this is important for us today, isn't it? This is important for us today as, we, as well, both in our lives and for our gospel witness. Listen. If the, if the resurrection of Jesus is a fact, and it is, then it proves that Jesus is deity. He is God, who claimed that he would be crucified and raised from the dead in three days. And he did. He did what only God can do. And if the resurrection proves that indeed Jesus is God, then all Jesus said must be true because God can only speak truth. See the logic in that. 
And if all that Jesus says is true, then God's word must be true. Because Jesus himself taught that it was true. And that means, in the most logical manner, with rationale, Christianity is real. The Christian faith is not based on an ancient philosophy. It's not rooted in a code of ethics. Christianity is not the product of a social experiment. Christianity is rooted in and forever linked to the historical person and works of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was God in flesh. And that makes the gospel real. And if the gospel is real, then that means that our mission, which is centered on the gospel, is real. And we are not living in vain. In fact, because our mission is a life and death mission, we are on the most essential, indeed, the only essential mission known to mankind. And I just want to submit to you, Christianity is based on fact. It's rooted in history. But you know what else it is? Its validity is expressed in you. Your lives that have been transformed by grace through faith in a historical man named Jesus who was God in the flesh. Your lives testify. Your lives are living proof that this mission is worth all we have. So we see that we can be hopeful in our mission because our mission is centered on Jesus. We are hopeful because our mission is real. It's based on history and fact. And third, we are hopeful because our mission is empowered by the Spirit. We are not alone. As you read Acts, you you can't help but marvel at how the gospel spreads so rapidly. Over and over again, we're we're gonna be going, wow, 3,000 people. Wow, listen to these progress reports. This is amazing. Can't help but marvel at how the gospel spread so rapidly, how the church grew so quickly, and how lives were transformed so radically. And of course, the, the early Christians, that they certainly had a profound sense of privilege and obligation to their gospel mission, something that, that, that I pray, beginning with me, that, that we will, as we witness it repeatedly in Acts, that it will grip us. 
that it'll move us to own the gospel mission that God has called us to. But the truth is that these people, these first century believers, most of them were not that learned in the faith. Christianity was in its infancy. The church was just being formed. The environment was fatally hostile. And yet, the world was being changed. These weren't rich, powerful intellects. These were ordinary people like you and I whose lives had suddenly been disrupted as they heard the gospel preached and they were, they were saved and they realized my life is not the same. <laughs> and that doesn't mean I just go to the synagogue or go to the house church. Or, uh, no, my life has a whole new purpose and meaning. It's not about me anymore. It's not about my family anymore. It's not about my job anymore. It's not about my security financially anymore. It's not about my leisure and my comfort anymore. I'm on a mission and it's about Jesus. I'm a witness. So how do you explain it? Look at verse 8. And this is the key passage in the entire book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. Not the power of an idea. Not military might. Not the power of currency. Not the power of legislation. The power of the Holy Spirit. God's powerful presence with his people, promised and provided by Jesus for his church to carry out the mission he began to the ends of the earth. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Now, so we are going to watch and learn about this power as we study in the book of Acts, but, but here's what we're going to learn. It's a power, first of all, that's outside of us. This is not a power that I can drum up. This is God Almighty at work in us and through us. The third person of the Trinity God's powerful presence with his people and even specifically to be his witness. It's a power that brings deep confidence and certainty in the gospel that we 
testify to. It's a power that creates an uncommon courage and boldness to preach Christ at any cost. It's a power that gives words and wisdom to speak in the moment like you didn't know you could. (laughs) It's a power that can soften hard hearts to respond to the truth of life, of the, of, to respond to the truth of the life-giving gospel you are sharing, even despite <laughs> you. It's the power of God present with his people through his spirit for the sake of building his church through the witness of his people to the truth of Christ. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not some grand novel idea. It's real. And it's not up to our resolve or our commitment, although that honors the Lord and he calls us to have a resolve, a holy resolve to be his witness. But the power is not in our commitment. The power is not in our resolve. Resolve and commitment are matters of obedience. The power, the power to be a gospel witness individually and as a church comes from God himself. The promised presence of the living Jesus with his people. Listen, our mission is like no other mission. I hope you see that. There's nothing you can give yourself to no matter how dignified or respectable it may be, there's nothing greater that you can give yourself than to being the witness of Jesus Christ with your words and through your life. It's a mission like no other mission. It's the only mission that ultimately matters (laughs) because it's a mission Well, it's a mission that's about life and death. It's a mission that's about the difference between heaven and hell. Our mission is like no other mission. And oh, how we need the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out this mission. You need it. I need it. Sovereign Grace Church needs it. Sovereign Grace Churches needs it. Every church scattered across our city needs it. Every believer on the globe needs it. And we have it. God has promised it to us. We are hopeful Because we know as we give ourselves to God's mission, 
the power of God, not us, but the power of God will prevail. Powerfully saving sinners, powerfully transforming lives, and powerfully building the church until the day that Jesus returns. See the end goal? It's not this. (laughs) Oh, it's far more grand than this. It's far more grand than the grandest church that's meeting right now. The goal is what we heard this morning in our call to worship, that one day God will be with his people in a profound way. We will worship in his presence. No sorrow, no sin, no suffering. We will be living in the presence of Jesus, unhindered and free from all that hinders us and enslaves us now. All will be made right. And we will finally and fully be who God created us to be, his people, his worshipers. And there will no longer be a need to be that witness bringing the message of Jesus Christ. Because all who are in his presence, by his grace and through the regenerating power of his spirit, will have received will have believed and will be reaping the fruits that God sowed for us in his son Jesus Christ through his life and his death and all the work that we will see in Acts and all the work that is being done now. And the mission...